0: Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst, reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement
1: analysis profession one episode at a time.
2: Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has three years of law enforcement analysis experience with four years of law enforcement experience overall. She is currently the intelligence operation manager with Hamilton County Sheriff's Office in Ohio. She earned her master's degree and a graduate certificate in crime analysis and prevention from the University of Cincinnati. She is one of Charlie Giberti's Analysts of Tomorrow, here to talk about among other things, an intelligence model, and the importance of police prosecutor relationship. Please welcome Akshata kumabat akshara how are we doing
0: hello all good how are oh, you
2: okay how'd i do on that name
0: very good Much okay than the others.
2: thank you thank you thank you so all right well welcome glad to have you my first question normally is how you discovered the law enforcement analysis profession but i do want to first get your reaction of being one of charlie giberti's analyst of tomorrow
0: I was very happily surprised and I respect Charlie very, very much. So listening to him mention me was a very respectable moment and I was very humbled by it. So all regards to him, every time that I need anything in terms of data, I always reach out to him.
2: Yeah. And it's funny. So I've now spoken with four of his analysts of tomorrow and the, the two guys, T.J. Sweet and Kyle McFatridge, and then mm-hmm. Shannon Streliloff. And it seems like the guys are like, yep, that sounds about right. I'm the analyst of tomorrow. And the women are a little bit more humbled by it. Like, oh, I, I'm just part of the team. So it's funny that I've gotten exactly right down the middle split right by gender with the reaction to being one of Charlie's analysts of tomorrow.
0: It was very happy. Moment for me. I didn't think he would because typically he would talk about data. And I'm not fully invested in doing the data crunching, number crunching kind of things, but more in terms of strategy. So I was kind of surprised. That yeah, felt well, good.
2: I think that's why you're going to be such a great guest today because we do often talk about data on this show and the importance of data. And I think you're going to have a unique perspective with your current role, and how you see the successes of your current role.
0: Thank you. Yes, I'd love to talk about that. All
2: right. So let's get started then. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession?
0: Very interesting question because my background has very little to do with actual law enforcement. I studied my law from India where I practiced for about two and a half years. And I was working with the prosecutor's office over there and dealt with a lot of organized crime human trafficking, narcotics, and anti-corruption kind of cases, sometimes even smuggled goods cases. So we used to always have officers come to our chambers and discuss what evidence they had on a specific suspect or what kind of investigation was going on. And then our chief prosecutor would obviously head up that strategy and suggest them where to look or what he needed in order to match that ingredient with the law and what the statute said. So that kind of keened my interest into, okay, what it is on the side of evidence that is required for a prosecution to become so successful. And by already working in the prosecutor's office, I already had my uh, defense cases as well. So at a time, my official role was to be working with him. But I was allowed to practice my personal cases. So I used to always pick up criminal defense matters. So I had a wide range of experience on both sides as to what it is that in a court can be thrown off by the defense and what will succeed on behalf of the prosecution. And so that's a very unique situation to be in. And I realized that there's more to it than just appearing before the judges and trying to present the case. There's a lot that goes behind making that case work up. So after that got over, I wanted to pursue further studies. And that's how I ended up coming to the United States. I got an admission in University of Cincinnati, got a really good scholarship. So it was a no brainer. And in that program, when I was studying the policing side of things, it was the law enforcement track, which I first chose, because I was always trying to understand better what the police mindset was when it came to evidence. And then of course, trying to get positions in police departments. There was a very good market boom for crime analysts. This was three years ago during my time in UC. And so I ended up completing my graduate certificate in crime prevention and analysis in that I was taught a lot about the practical aspects of maps and why they are used, the whole ArcGIS platform. But on the other hand, what I learned and what retained the most was the concept of crime script, just like a movie script, an offender would go from point A to point B trying to premeditate his steps before actually completing his crime. And so there were some theories like you know rational choice theory and routine activities theory that we were exposed to, which got us more knowledgeable into even before crime analysis can be performed, we, we have to think in terms of what the offender thinks uh, before committing an offense. So I was more intrigued by that overall and that's how then i got a job with the sheriff's office before i started working as an intel analyst and a research specialist kind of a role and in that period of time i had the opportunity to learn a lot about this agency and how it functioned it never had a crime analysis capability at all So even before our office could invest anything in expensive tools and software for doing analysis, I started just manipulating things on Excel and as simple as just trying to get our calls for service data together, advising our district commanders on, you know, these are your numbers and this is where you need to look, or we would not even have the ability to show them hotspots, but I was able to create some kind of drop downs for them to check on the highest number of addresses that got the calls so that they knew that at least it was boiled down to that specific street address. So in small ways, I tried to you know give back before we could have a whole unit developed. And then in 2021, we started hiring more people. That's how we got to our team of three analysts and one criminal investigator right now. And I, that's how I ended up getting elevated in my role from an analyst to intelligence operations manager.
2: Okay. Hmm. What of impact there. So so then when you were growing up, did you always have a, a desire to move to the States?
0: I was actually in a different setting when I was completing law school. I was mm-hmm. thinking that I would somehow complete about five to seven years of practice in India and then come down here to probably take the bar exam and there are only specific states that would allow for the same level of experience that was practiced in a common law society just like India is and uh, I thought let me try and come take the bar exam here but when I came here my entire goal changed.
2: Oh, okay. Once you get off the plane and you're there in Cincinnati, what do you remember as maybe being you really surprised by or really shocked by? What was the, kind of your welcoming to the United States moment?
0: So, I mean, I would suggest that a lot of movies and TV shows cover a lot of culture that the US has. Mm-hmm. So, not much surprise there. But I I just loved how systematic everything is. And of course, the entire process of how examinations are conducted and how studies happen here is much different for me. Back in India, we don't even have knowledge of what questions will be asked in the exam. We're just given the exam paper and you just have to finish the entire syllabus on your own. Um, So that was kind of different to look at uh, when I was doing my master's program here.
2: All right. And then just one quick question. Are you used to Cincinnati chili yet?
0: I haven't tried it yet. You
2: haven't tried it? Oh, I thought that would have been a requirement living in Cincinnati by now that you had to try it.
0: I still have to. I hear a lot of people talk about Cincinnati, Chile. More than that, there's a lot of talk about Cincinnati Reds and the yeah. football. Um, <laughs> last year, we were supposed to win the Super Bowl, but that yeah. didn't happen. Yeah. So a so, of hey, people it office. sounds
2: like you're getting well-versed on the, the social culture. So you're, you're, you're up to speed. A little
0: um, bit.
2: <laughs> yeah. So then, just a question from India to the States in terms of the law. Obviously, some differences there and, and similarities. I don't want to just focus on the differences, but was there something in particular that you remember as you're going from your day studying in the law in India versus coming over here to the states and learning the state system?
0: I think the biggest difference for me is the decentralization of law here is that every state has its own Supreme Court. Whereas in India, we have one Supreme Court where all the appellate cases would go there. And for us, all the law is unified for the whole country. And it was very new for me when I came in here that every state had their own law for different wide ranging topics, even in terms of wildlife and forest services, there's way different laws and different states based mm-hmm. on what kind of, you know, impact that they make in those particular states, which is why I kind of steered away from continuing law here is that I would have to decide on which states laws I must study before I could take. Oh, yeah. So and that was way too much for me to make a decision on From seven C's on that side,
2: (laughs) you know, (laughs) trying
0: to estimate which state to go in out of 50 states, that's way too much. So that's the biggest thing. And the other one was that the way the codes are written here, they're very long and they're very in one subject itself. So it's very differently written out in our country. The language is different. We have a lot of our language written by the English. A lot of the law was drafted way back in the 18th century, so we have kind of kept that and any kind of amendments that come along. And here they're named differently. Their titles and ingredients are different. The language is different. So... Yes. I mean, in my day to day business, I do have to read offense codes in trying to make sense of why was this person charged with this? What are the ingredients of the section that really fit that crime? So it's much different.
2: And then with the certificate program, is there a class or a technique or a program that sticks with you that you've really got a lot out of?
0: I will say that the identification of what is a crime series, sequence, hotspots, they're all different by definition. Mm -hmm. And even before a crime needs to be looked at from a crime prevention angle versus an intelligence angle versus a problem-oriented policing angle, you first have to identify the what of the crime, of what am I dealing with? Is this even the kind of crime that is, I shouldn't even say crime, but an offense which is a quality of life offense, or if it's a violent crime, or if it's Mm -hmm. happening over a trend, or is it just once in that particular area, so that's an isolated offense. I think that's what stood out to me the most in my class, is the development of a crime script and to apply those crime prevention and criminological theories to crime, rather than the statistics and the mapping of it all.
2: All right. And then how long did it take you to finish the certificate? About a year. About a year. So
0: it was an integrated subject in the career, the entire program.
2: Okay. All right. And then did you have a big project or anything at the end of it? And what was it?
0: My entire demonstration project was around police effectiveness. So I was writing about the topic of how police in American society were trying to make a balance between new effective strategies versus being in the way the traditional culture of police has been so that was what my paper was about it was less of a study than more like a research paper writing
2: and what did you conclude New it wasn't America. a
0: research. I didn't think anything. <laughs> I was basically collecting a lot of articles over time that were talking about the same concept around. And I just culled out the most important facets. And then my professor liked it. And that's what I only cared about. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so I don't know about you. I also went to the University of Cincinnati for graduate school. And and by the time I was done with graduate school, I was so done with college. I did not want to read another textbook. Oh yeah, tell me about it. So I can imagine that maybe you were in the same boat.
0: I was absolutely in the same boat. By the end of the semester, I just thought to myself, this is the last leg of the game. I have to just finish (laughs) writing a paper. Otherwise, they will not let me graduate. Uh-huh. So let me just do it. Yeah. It, <laughs> After you complete five years of law school, you're <laughs> like you're done. You're yeah. done with education.
2: Oh, I bet. Oh, all right. So then you start at the sheriff's office. Are you in charge of the whole entire county, or is it just a subset? Of the county that you start working on because you mentioned bring start bringing in stats and helping folks to focus on certain topics and areas
0: yes so sheriff's office by law has to be supportive and provide services to a specific city or a small township or with everything within the county's limits does fall under the sheriff's office however a lot of small townships and Little cities have been incorporated enough that they can stand up their own police departments. So those that have their own, they do not recruit the efforts of the sheriff's office. However, our sheriff's office has about thirteen townships within us that have contracted with us for services, and they together make five districts. So when I said that we make our statistics and give them to our district commanders, they have those responsibility of sharing that with the trustees, the council men who have contracted with the sheriff's office. And it's it's for them to be transparent towards their own citizens in the townships. So that helps us. So overall, I will say that our intelligence operations do have to keep an eye out on any kind of common offenders that are passing through city lines, town lines into our patrol areas. And vice versa. But then being in Cincinnati here, we very closely work with CPD as well, their intel unit and the real-time crime center. So uh, we have really good relations there. And we also have the Greater Cincinnati's Fusion Center. So we have good relations with them as well so overall if i have to put it when i say that i have to manage the Intel operations for the county i will say it includes the patrol areas and what is happening within our county but not not so closely as the police departments would pay attention but it's more like i need to know what's happening around my area but it's if it's within our patrol area then i have to do something about it if it's in my area so that's the responsibility
2: I have. You mentioned that when you just started, you didn't have very many programs. You were just doing it in Excel. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you eventually get to recommending to your supervisors that, hey, this, these are the programs mm-hmm. that we would need? And if so, what are those programs?
0: Yeah, really interesting question. So we were building out, initially, it was just myself and my captain, the unit captain. He was always wanting to expand our team. But before that, we needed for even the analysts to come on board and find something unique to what they could use in terms of software. So my knowledge of what was used in the crime analysis course helped me. First, I advised to get ArcGIS, obviously. I did not get the I2 analyst notebook immediately because we wanted something more robust than just do link charting. We have so many data sources, especially because we have to also manage the jail. And also we have to keep an eye out on the local probation court's office, local clerk of court's office, the municipal courts and the common police court uh, So There's a ton of information that comes from there, as well as the stuff that is stored into our own investigative case files, one that's for personal crimes and one that manages the narcotics side. And then you have another layer of everything that's coming on the NIBERS reports every day. Every day, new incident reports, new call records are being generated, the dispatch data, there's tons of data. So we could not just rely on I2 to do the job. We needed something really robust. So that's how I ended up recommending DataWalk to my captain. And that's how we started getting that. And in fact, we are just about two weeks from completion of implementation. It started last August. And yeah. finally, right now, we have we have ArcGIS and DataWalk.
2: So is that like an RMS system then? Or what do you expect to get out of the DataHawk system?
0: It's DataWalk.
2: Oh, Data yeah. Walk. I'm sorry. I thought you said yeah. Hawk. Okay. Sorry. sorry. I was gonna say I never heard of Data Hawk, but I have heard
0: of Data yeah, Walk. Actually, sorry. I haven't heard of Data Walk either. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Data Walk is is not an RMS, it's an interconnecting kind of a tool which allows you to not only see all data in one place, but make sure to see which portions of that data set connect with each other. And you can of course do link charting with it, but it is kind of a system that alerts you of what hidden objects might be connected to each other in the background before you can even go stumbling over each object and find out okay show me which objects are connected to this it doesn't you know in, in one vibe it can give you a whole picture okay
2: all right and then so it seems like you have a lot of avenues to go into there's a <laughs> lot of ways you could either study data, study areas. Did you find a niche or a particular project that you latched onto as you developed your skills in the first couple of years here?
0: I would say that during my couple of years, I also accomplished getting criminal profiling as a certificate course. I think that has helped me a lot because every time that I have to look at crimes that have unknown suspects in it, they call it unsub, like for unknown subjects, but it helps to understand what the mindset might be of the offender. And right now it's a little difficult to do geographical profiling because of how easy it is to just put an address on GPS or understand okay, there's a nice town center in this part of the area, I can go and steal from there. But that's something I latched on to. But overall I'll say that I have kept my focus on the offenders rather than places because offenders seem to travel from places to places, whereas a place itself. The fact that it can change its appearance over the years, let's say a new business has come in, or the very business that used to be a problem business has shut down, the place itself then loses its value. The offenders start looking for another place to go and offend. So I would rather trace the offender than focus on the place. that's something that I have honed in on. And one of the products that we make are offender lists for our district commanders that they know if this person has been involved in our incident history or has been dispatched to this house several number of times, or if he has a long criminal history, then that's the person to look at. And then we will inform the officers on the street of who we are looking at it's almost like your own your very own curated wanted persons list but often developed over time so that it's not just one whole lump sum list in which we are throwing everybody together there's a purpose behind it we will also try and deconflict with our investigations to see you know do you think is wanted for your specific case and then we'll you know make sure that that information is communicated to the officers as well so that's one way that we have tried to focus there. But there are, again, a lot of other ways that we do informally, like briefing with officers, getting them to email information to us. Or let's say if they arrested someone, then they want to find out more about what their background is such as who their parole officers would be when are they coming out of jail or if there are any jail calls happening between this individual and another one outside trying to plan things then those are the things that we look beyond just arresting the individual and we will intimate the officer based on what we find.
2: So then you mentioned studying criminal profiling and Mm -hmm. I think with many people they hear that they they think of serial killers or serial rapists or something like that, really the high end or the the most violent offenders. But it sounds like you have used that study for all types of criminals, even down to your petty thieves and robbers.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'd say that originally, the study started for more of serious violent crimes and serial rapists and it was only effective on if there's a pattern that the profile can be adjusted to i would like to think that in the long run of things and for more practical use out of profiling it can be used in the all crimes genre also and i say that only because of specific things that from the evidence itself can be highlighted to build the profile so I wouldn't say that because there's a pattern to a crime that it's happening over a specific time in the day or it's known to have so many signatures of the offender left behind that now you can complete a profile, whereas that's the more routine way of performing criminal profiling. In, in my case, what I try to focus on is to look at the experience level of the offender, of his knowledge, of how quickly he was able to even get in and get out of there. So that kind of hints at whether this person has been doing this for a long time, or is this the first time? But to give you an example, some of the auto thefts that we had, some of the video footages we were getting, if they took a longer time than a small small period of time, that told me that they've at least done this five times before. So, you know, it's the timing of things. It's the systematic performance of things. And that's what leads me to believe when an individual has either learned that skill or has been tutored that skill because a lot of the up and coming juveniles would get tutored under the more advanced people of their time in how to do certain things and so i try to tap into that section of profiling more and trying to see okay if this person is capable of this these things what else can he be capable of and that helps me to apply that to the intelligence side of things trying to look at, okay, if I was in this scenario, would I call upon my girlfriend who I'm not talking to? Or would I call up my mother? Or would I go <laughs> to a different city where my grandmother lives? So that kind of helps me to look at things in a much different perspective. So that's that's where I will use profiling.
2: Do you study individuals that are initially just doing crime on their own? They're not part of a gang or a crew. where they're really a lot of those will get on the police radar pretty quickly but some of these lower end criminals if they're acting on their own and they're a lone wolf so to speak they can Mm -hmm. really burglarize and cause havoc on their own do you get into that level at all or is it more on the higher level where you're taking down crews and gangs
0: I'll say that it's a little bit of both. I won't say that I am very fully after the gangs aspect itself because we don't have those many, at least in our patrol areas. There's many down in Cincinnati, but that's their headache. (laughs) Uh, I'll say that when it comes to a more individual level, uh, we have a lot of petty burglaries as well as... uh, very ser- serious property kind of crimes as well. Uh, so I'll say that on an individual level, I would like to focus on where the background of this individual is, if they have any criminal histories on them, or, and try try to combine more of information from law enforcement databases and with what we know about them as they were found in those areas. Now, officers on the beats, they know their people the most. They know where this individual frequents most. They talk to the business owners, the residential managers. They always are in constant communication with them. So they, of course, hear things like, okay, this guy comes here every day or we have to make sure that our doors are locked because we have heard few doors down, lane that someone else's house got burglarized. So they kind of have awareness of what the street is. And so we try to tap into that more and combine that together with the information we find on the law enforcement databases. So for an individual involved in a property crime or a violent crime, especially with violent crime, it's it's either a crime of opportunity or it's a crime of passion. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't want to generalize any of the two, but most of the times that we have traffic stops with drugs and so on, there's always a passenger in the car than being a lone wolf, so to speak. And that's what we look for even in terms of gangs is that criteria of complicitness should be there. Mm -hmm. That there's at least two or more individuals that are working in complicity or have knowledge of each other's actions. So on that front, we will look at it on an aggregate level, but otherwise... We try to make our
2: best with the individual yeah i think it's an interesting angle that you're coming from because if i'm thinking about a lot of police departments in the country that i've seen work or worked for certainly have your bean counters where they're going over the stats they're going over the crimes calls for service and that is the angle that they're coming in from and you may have some groups that are dealing with drugs and gangs in that they are studying groups, mostly because there's some violence probably involved and they're trying to curb the, the drug trade in, in the city. Mm-hmm. And, but when it gets down to some robberies or burglaries, it usually has to hit a threshold before somebody, it gets on somebody's case and it establishes a well pattern before they're even looking at it. Yes. And so do you have a sense then from maybe talking with other agencies, the angle that you're coming at where you're truly studying all the individuals and, and coming from that angle, like how unique is your perspective as opposed to other jurisdictions in the country?
0: I'm going to try my best to speak about their side of things because Mm -hmm. I'm not very knowledgeable on how they would want to treat this. I'm sure that every agency in the course of their investigation, they would uncover a lot of things about that subject itself. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when it's an unknown suspect, that's when the problem happens because you don't know where it happened and who did it because a lot of times you have some of these auto thefts they would be stolen overnight and no one knows the timing of Mm -hmm. how you know who did it so i'll say that um, it's not much different than investigation that's carried out on an individual level it really depends on how successfully You know, the detectives are able to either gather from interviews or gather from any kind of background profiles already on the individual or talk to some of the witnesses around and they kind of build up their case like that. Uh, Another part that we focus on is the tips. A lot of times we would receive tips about the same individual that one of our units is already looking into. So then that kind of adds another lead to their investigation. So I think that a lot of these in other jurisdictions also follow the same path. They would need to, and they would have to,
2: yeah. in order
0: to get to the end. So yeah.
2: hmm. now, You talked about your leads there. So obviously you just mentioned tips and I'm imagining it, someone is getting out on parole that -hmm. would be somebody that you may start looking at as well are there other Mm -hmm. ways that you get tips
0: so with our unit we are set up to receive the entire agency's tips and we would be monitoring them on a 24-7 basis now anytime like you mentioned the situation of a new parolee or a runaway escape or anybody who's a wanted person Mm -hmm. a lot of times we would get information on them based on where they are currently at the moment or what they are charged with and why they are out some basic information like that so we try to talk to the person who's giving information and try to find out more than just that and look at okay well what can we expect with this individual are they armed Or are they dangerous? And uh, and are they under substance abuse before someone has to intercept them? And then, of course, once you get those tips, our most important goal is to maintain that essence of timeliness and pass it on to the next relevant authority immediately. So if sometimes we don't have a solution with us, we would just advise the district commander to take action on it, and they would decide as they choose from the course of action. So that's how we function our tips. Hey, this is Dawn Rebe.
2: I'm here with Jason Elder on Analyst Talk. And I want to share with you that there is a new
0: book coming out for supervisors called Building a Crime Analysis Legacy. This is a law enforcement supervisor's roadmap to building long lasting, high quality analytical capacity. August 10th is the day that it comes out. Don't miss out. Tools
2: strategies everything you need to build quality analytics is in this book so be sure to get your copy on august
1: 10th hi my name is kyle McFatridge, and i want to talk to you today about merging in construction zones you've probably understood merging in construction zones to be getting over as fast as you can this is not correct merging lanes are designed to be filled all the way to the point they end and traffic then merges one vehicle at a time think about it logically Would traffic flow better if people randomly stopped, put on their turn signal, and tried to get over? Or if both lanes were completely full? The lane is supposed to be full until the point you come to a traffic cone and can no longer fill it. So to the people that block that lane, swerve at cars, honk, yell, or flip off people trying to use the merging lane correctly, you are not only rude, you are wrong. You do not get angry at people who pass you in the left lane a couple miles from that construction site, so why would you then be angry at them for passing you at the construction site? So next time you come to a merge in a construction zone, remember to go all the way to the end and merge one car at a time. You will be doing it the right way and help make traffic flow much better for everyone, even for those angry people. Thank you.
2: Let's get into some stories then. Your analyst badge story deals with a a gang that you worked on. Tell me how you identified the gang and how you started working and what the
0: outcome was. I think this is one of those perfect combinations of trying to put prosecution in terms of what the gang is made up of. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some years ago, there was a lot of suspects regarding old cases, old homicides. We had a hunch on who had done uh, the homicide versus trying to locate them. So every time we tried to monitor something on open source or we tried to look for any activity happening in that area itself, there would be a lot of music videos and show of firearms and possession of drugs with these kind of individuals. And their names used to always come up very frequently on the intelligence reports our officers would put. And gradually that became very common theme. Certain specific addresses started popping up very commonly between them. And so we started to put together. Together, a list of suspects who had either had been wanted for specific murders or they had been wanted for felonious assault kind of charges or aggravated rob kind of charges or shots fired. So they're all felonies according to our Ohio Revised Code. So what we started to do was then contemplate that if this particular network of offenders since they are wearing the colors they're showing up the signs they have the same symbols on them but they are still just an informal gang and what if we could try and make them as an official criminal gang and that was one of our uh, biggest goals for this year is that try if if we tried to designate them or if the prosecutor's office could get them to fit according to the criteria the definition of gang in the Ohio Revised Code. then everybody on that suspect list, plus the other bunch of offenders who know about them, who associate with them, and who have some nexus to them, get that charge of participating in a criminal gang. Because for that requirement, you must have knowledge of their activities, you should at least be associated with them, and there have to at least be two or more individuals involved in there. So given all these definitions put together, what our biggest goal right now is, is that we are trying to make more official sense of what these groups of people are like. And so therefore, it really helps everybody. It helps investigations. It helps patrol. If they're making a quick traffic stop on someone and they realize that, hey, this person was connected to this list of individuals, we can immediately put them for a bigger charge. Because people out there are not innocent. They're carrying firearms, they're carrying drugs. And what we care about is as public safety to try and put them away for the long, longest time so that they'll be able to do lesser damage in society and lesser harm in society. So that's the goal here. And I am really proud that our unit is getting to work on something like that, which is going to help federal cases. It's going to help local cases as well. It's just a win-win for not just our unit, but for petrol and investigations both.
2: Okay, so is this more than one group then, or is this one big group that um, you're targeting?
0: So it's recently there have been subsets of this one big group. It it started off being as one big group. There were about fifteen in there, and so slowly they started branching out with different names, but they all kind of have common individuals between them. So there are about three or four subsets of the bigger group. Okay. So
2: you mentioned the officer that may pull over one of these individuals. This information goes all the way down to the patrolman or woman. And so they're aware of who these targeted individuals are. How long have you been at this? I'd
0: say it's been about a couple of months.
2: When you started there... Was there a good relationship between police and prosecutor, or is that something that you've been able to mend since your time there?
0: I would say that our unit has been little to influence that direct relationship, so I have not had a direct impact on that. I will say since our investigations and the narcotics side, they have a very long term basis contact with prosecution. In fact, a a prosecutor from the office has been designated for them. So I would say that they work very fluently together as it is, that it hasn't come to that point that we've had to convince a prosecutor to take up on something more seriously. But for this specific case, I think we are going to soon have that meeting with them and try to make them aware of look at this environment here and if there's anything that's coming out of this particular gang that you need to focus more so I think right now is one of those key moments where we will start to talk with the prosecutor's office but again we try our best to go through our existing investigations rather than go there as an independent unit saying okay now we want to do this because as an intelligence unit we are just in a support role Mm -hmm. we don't really work cases nor do we go to court nor do we you know try and work the case with the officer so we are just trying to help other units do their work better that's that's how i see it Mm -hmm. and i think that their relationships are already pretty strong so there's no reason in trying to reinvent that so we would just you know work with them and go like that
2: all right you're keeping the end in mind which is always good right so you Mm -hmm. have this idea of where You would like this case to go because you have the Ohio state statutes Mm -hmm. that that you're working from, and you know that you need to build this case with so much information, so many different connections in order to meet that threshold of prosecution in order to apply a more harsher sentence.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And so from your vantage point, then as the analysts, or even the, those that you you supervise, it's obviously there's a certain knowledge that you need for that threshold, but it's also working with investigators, gathering that, doing your own research through the yes. databases and systems that you have access to in order to kind of put this whole thing together to build this up, so to speak.
0: Yes. I will say that it's been very knowledgeable for me since I have started here because every day is a new piece of learning. First, it was about how do even investigators work and where, where is the first point of contact they make? How do they decide if a specific case must be dropped or pursued or what kind of action must be taken for which kind of case? So it was a lot of learning around that and then every day there's new precedent coming about search and seizures and you know how to get statements and what kind of information can be legally admissible and so on so forth there's constant case law coming out for a lot of things so even when it comes to us as intelligence trying to follow guidelines of 28 cfr Part 23 we have to make sure that we are remaining within those constitutional bounds it's just kind of like internet is just like someone's house you need a search warrant (laughs) to do certain things so trying to understand in which case like let's say if you want to find out information on a person's phone you're going to need a search warrant for that and how to get that signed from the court and what do they need to establish whether you have that probable cause established or not so there's a lot of learning I would say just within coming here I have very first tried and understand the policies and procedures of the sheriff's office itself Mm -hmm. because learning the organizational behavior goes a very long way in understanding who is responsible for which piece. Sometimes even if the record system says that this person is the lead investigator, it's actually not. Someone else is doing the work and someone else is, you know, putting in information in there. But you end up just going on the face value, then you're not going to get anywhere. So you have to do a lot of digging. You have to constantly make face-to-face contact with investigators and officers, trying to get into their mindset a little bit and always be in the know of what's going to happen next because they're already very occupied. They're not going to have the time to pick up the phone and call you and inform you like, hey, this is the next step we're taking. You have to always be there. You have to always make sure that you know what's going on with the progress. So for a long time, it's kind of like the prompting process that unless I ask you those questions, I will not get the answer. So there is no policy or process that mandates them to pick up the phone and call the intel supervisor that, hey, this has happened. It's for you to go door to door knock and find out, which is why it's so much work. Now, is there any
2: concern about, for lack of a better term, entrapment? meaning that you all certainly want to build a case to the level of gang to meet the statute, but at the same time, these individuals are not your typical gang members, as you mentioned. Obviously, you are collecting everything the the same, but just to anticipate maybe a possible defense.
0: I would say that just going into the door If we are going to present all this voluminous information at once, we have to make sure that following that intelligence cycle, that our information is reliable and vetted and processed. Mm -hmm. We cannot otherwise disseminate that to the prosecutors, right? So I I like to see this just as an intelligence cycle would process. Right now, we have tons of raw information that can prove X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. But we must ensure that we only filter out and get those which are directly going to have an impact after we have made sure that we are following that criteria, not just of the prosecution in mind, but also the compliance factors in mind when it comes to how much of information is relevant to the case. Are we crossing any lines here? Or are we trying to make something irrelevant into relevant? and just somehow bring it to the borderline. So we have to try and do that evaluation of reliability and validity of that raw information before it can even be passed out. I think that is the truest essence of why the Intel cycle was even created. Because if you were to simply go hunting for information out there, you'll find tons. But how can you tell which one you can stick with and which one you can't? Both legally speaking, ethically speaking, and procedurally speaking. So it's that vetting process that enables us to go right into the door saying that, okay, we have done our work right. This time, you know, and we we cannot go back on this. And besides, even before it, it goes to the court, we sit down with the prosecutors and then then they apply their own level of filter, which we may have missed out on. Like, hey, we can take this, but we can't take this. So this one, this in this piece of information needs to be purged. We can only keep this. And so they'll work through another layer. So, by the time it goes to the court, we know for sure that what we have gathered is going to meet that successful end. Otherwise, meeting that kind of embarrassment in court would be very defeating.
2: Are you, con- not you personally, but is somebody from your group contacting these individuals and letting them know? that they are on this targeted list. And and the reason I'm thinking of this is I know there's a similar program in Cincinnati in okay. which they were using social network analysis and identifying people mm-hmm. that were basically the, the strong points of the network. If you pull them out, then mm-hmm. the, the group falls, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And one of the steps was they went to them and said, hey, we are targeting you mm-hmm. um, we want to offer you services mm-hmm. if you want to get out of this type of behavior and so here's the help that we can offer otherwise you know we're, we're coming after you basically is what yeah. the message was and so i wasn't sure if this followed a similar path as as that
0: i'll say that we are in no peace point of authority to do that um, mm-hmm. And a lot of times that if one has to be pursued outside to try and engage them in giving more information to us, it would be on behalf of the investigator and their responsibility to convert them into a source or, you know, ask them to be our lead for any other future case development. But I don't think we do that. here.
2: In terms of this project, then what do you wish that you had? That you don't currently have.
0: I really wish data walk would be implemented because it would <laughs> make things much easier.
2: You're just a couple of weeks away. So
1: that's that's the yes. good news.
0: This has been going on for a long, long time. I will just say that what I wish is more cooperation from investigative units when it comes to compiling all this, is that while I don't mind going and knocking every door, it's also very exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to do that. I want them to realize that intelligence is a very big piece of the puzzle that they're trying to put together. And it's just, it's not a matter of one or two investigators. I right now have a team of six people working on this, one from each investigative section. So I just wish that they believe they need the help of the Intel unit to put this together. And oftentimes they would think that they could do it all by themselves, Mm -hmm. but that's not the case. And since we are in a support role, we would anyway be finishing that product and handing it to them for them to take whatever decision they want to take. So I think they forget that, which is why it's difficult to get cooperation from them. So I'll say that that's my wish list. (laughs)
2: Hmm. I think that's interesting. Are you still dealing with the five districts or is the group, the investigative group that you're working with more essential?
0: We work with those districts in a much different capacity than the investigators do. Okay. Now investigators get called out to the scene only when there is a crime and only when there is an incident that has initiated an investigative response. Otherwise investigators don't go to those districts. But when there is no crime happening, there's still a lot of information that keeps coming out of petrol activity, like the traffic stops, or like any kind of contacts they make with citizens, or if they learn about any new activity on the street, that's the kind of information that investigators don't get, because they would only be called out if there was an incident. So I I will say that when there's a lot of petrol activity, our monitoring and attention of that is much more regular than investigative work is regular in those districts.
2: Good. All right. Let's move on then. I do want to talk about an intelligence model that you are developing. And so let's just start there. Like what what the model is and and what do you hope to achieve from it?
0: Um, I would say that it is not one... A big model, I would say that I have utilized processes from multiple models to try and suit my needs uh, here at the Sheriff's Office. The Sheriff's Office has a lot of resources that it can use and put to use on sometimes a regular basis or more in terms of investigative requirements. But the overall, I have studied models that are very well known to a lot of other intelligence professionals out there, like the one that's from the national intelligence model from UK, or the one that the Army follows, it's the intelligence preparation of battlefield and so on. Or for example, the United Nations model of how they do with drugs and as well as what you know Jerry Ratcliffe has published in the US about intelligence-led policing. So having all these different models at hand, each one of them does intelligence, but in their own unique way. So if you will go on to read these models, they will all talk about those six steps of intelligence. But what differs from them is their method of how they execute it. Like in the UK, they would have things like your tasking and coordination groups, that are both tactical and strategic, where they'll have commanders talk together about intelligence targets, about high profile areas, about any kind of high risk issues that the specific district has. So once they have those, then they would nail down the strategic priorities and actually task it out to the officer. So that's their model. If there's any kind of, let's say, a crime prevention angle to it, that we have, especially studying in the US, I have understood that sometimes you have to put a more problem-oriented policing kind of angle to intelligence work as well, trying to see, okay, are we going to have any result and outcome out of this kind of intelligence activity? If you're collecting information on people and places, it is with the goal that you will do something about it, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where the problem-oriented angle comes. So I have Try to take bits and pieces of these multiple information pieces out there and try to curate it in a way that fits the model for our office. Because right now, just like every other agency, we are dealing with a lot of shortages in personnel. And so we want to try and do more with less. That's always been the theme. So trying to get really smart with resources, smart with people and timing of things is really important for us. So that's one of the reasons why I even got into studying all these models is to even understand as to if you're going to be establishing an intelligence unit, how do we conduct operations on a local law enforcement level? Because you hear about strategic intelligence priorities at a more federal or state level. Like, okay, we we have terrorist threats or we have, let's say, violent crime gangs. But for local law enforcement like us, we can't say that thefts are of less importance than felonese assaults. We have to pay attention to everything.
1: Uh,
0: Or I can't say that in a trailer park, there are more drug-related and domestic violence cases. And in one district, we have violent crimes. So this one's more important. Mm -hmm. I can't do that. So I have to kind of make everybody learn the skill and concept of how do you even implement problem-oriented policing, Or why is there need for recognizing that this is a chronic problem in your area? And how do you go about it? So it's at once trying to put a lot of models in place, but for the right reasons. It's also not like creating chaos. Let's throw all armory at once and try to shoot the problem. It's not that either. It's about really trying to ID the problem first, trying to understand what am I dealing with here? And with all the knowledge that I have, what will be the best resource to tackle this one problem? That's where it's come from. I don't have yet, I was planning to write a paper or a book. I don't know if probably it's so long that it'll be a book. But I think that over time, as I work more and more cases with our intelligence unit, that I will be able to have a list of things that if this happens, then this works, you know, kind of like that.
2: And I think it's interesting from the local perspective, because the models that you mentioned there certainly at the most likely in the national level there, and you mm-hmm. mentioned that they do have ones with the state level. But <laughs> I think you almost have to target because you can't spend equal amount of time on every single aspect of yes. The jobs. A lot of people won't want to hear that certain things, certain yes. act crimes, have more weight than others. But because of the situation that you mentioned, with shortages and so many resources, you do have to target mm-hmm. and try to get the biggest bang out of your buck for yes. for what you're doing. So, I guess in that respect, it would be okay to to target. Is there other aspects that you have struggled with trying to apply these national intelligence models to the local? I
0: think one of the things I struggle with is that in our unit, it's only us, who understand that language of why when we talk in terms of models and strategies or trying to understand what the specific technique means or say crime prevention techniques or to the fact that we're even calling them crime prevention techniques. This kind of jargon is more academic and a normal police officer on the street is not going to understand that. So I think my struggle is that when we're trying to implement something, we have to first try and boil it down to a very layman level, such that you can explain it in one line to a five-year-old. So that comes to become a struggle. But then, you know, Einstein used to always say that if you can't explain the concept, maybe you haven't understood it well. So I kind of take that as a challenge on myself and try to, try to boil it down to the basic crux and try to convert it into an analogy. And very importantly, if we want to make change happen, We have to educate those around us as to why you need it. And I think officers for the longest time, or even investigators for that matter, have thought of their jobs to be that there's only one way. Patrolling is just one thing. You have to, there's no other new way of patrolling. So they think that this this particular job of investigation or being a detective or being an officer has been done over the years, over last 50, 70 years, or for the longest time the policing has existed, that they don't need to change anything about it. And so suddenly when you walk into the room, educating them about, let's try to change this, they will first want to know the reason why. And so trying to explain to them as to why this is not working and why you need to change the script a little bit here, and this is how you do it. To get to that, part is the most difficult one i say it does require a lot one on one require you to almost get down to the level of the officer and explaining to them as to why you are bringing that change in before you even tell them that you know, this is expected or to teach them how to do it so that it's comfortable to them because change is the biggest enemy for someone who has been doing the job for years in a certain way. And that's why walking in the door, one of the struggles that you had asked me what I experienced with in trying to implement these models is that, that to try and convert that knowledge in the most easier to understand manner with the officers.
2: Because, they probably don't see it, right? They don't see the end goal. They see the way they've always done it and see what's in their minds, it's worked. So if it's broken, not to why yeah. fix it? That's it, yeah. Okay, interesting. Let's then talk about some advice that you have for our listeners. One of the questions I like to ask is the return on investment question. And this is where I asked the guests, what can analysts study today that may be important five, ten years from now?
0: Have two things. And one is more of a constant for analysts that's going to be important even 15 years. And even today, I'll say that every analyst that gets into the profession before they can identify what my tools are and what do I have to work with, which version is my Microsoft and which version is my, you know, ArcGIS. Mm -hmm. Before all of that, what they need to understand is that information travels at a very fast speed and if they don't stumble on it at the right moment, That that information, the minute it gets released, is stale information. Everybody knows about it. One of the greatest keys an analyst holds in their wallet is the information they possess. The minute that information gets out of their hand, it's reaching out to multiple sources. And now it's time to fetch more. Fetch more of that fresh information. So I'm saying all of this to come down to this. Is that before an analyst gets into their job or gets so occupied in the day-to-day routine of the job, even if it's five years or 10 years for their entire career, it's always going to remain important in trying to study organizational behavior. And by that, what I mean is... How specific patrol supervisors, your investigative supervisors, right from the captains to the majors and to the you know chiefs of that agency, and how they think matters, where they see that there's more capitalizing to do, what matters to the officers, and it's it's answering these kind of questions, trying to understand whose nature to do is what and whose capacity of position is to do what? For example, what is a patrol sergeant to do in if he was put in a scenario that is X, Y, and Z? Or what is investigation sergeant to do if he comes across this information? And so that way, if you understand how people behave or how an organization itself behaves, the interdependencies of one another's jobs is that when does an officer do a job after he's first known about it? How is his job interdependent on his supervisor's job and vice versa? And I say this only because when we realize that intelligence needs to be communicated, you have to follow through chain of command. Chain of command is huge in the policing world. And if we know that One thing has to happen before the other. You need to understand which is your best recourse. It's just like in project management, you would see what your fastest course of action is going to be. And if you have to get to this point, which is your best route to go and then try to prompt it. And organizational behavior also teaches you which are the best ways of communication. Is it an email? Is it a briefing? Is it a staff meeting? Is it a meeting with the supervisor? Or is it meeting with the squads? Or is it going on a ride along? Or is it going through a search warrant with a detective? You have ample of avenues to get something done but if you need something done promptly you have to understand the right way of doing it and the right people who will get the job done so it's not a joke when say that your work gets done only when you know the people who do it it's who you know it's not what you know it's the same in the in every agency so the analyst must on their speed dial or in the back of their hand need to know is the who's of who's in the agency, which is why I think even when administration changes happen, let's say a new major is appointed, a new chief comes in, or a new chief deputy comes in, a new sheriff comes in, all of these things keep changing. So I think that that's very important for the analyst to learn. So that's one thing. And the second thing that they can always find use in is that While law enforcement databases like your NCIC and your McLaughlin, your index, all that stuff is still going to be there. But there's all this other bunch of information which the analysts can never find out is all the human intelligence. It's all the stuff that officers are writing into their field intelligence reports or whether writing or not, sometimes officers will just discuss this in their briefings and get over with it. There's no documentation of that contact. And if the officers know specific people in that area, if they already have a good rapport with someone in the area, then that person is going to be the source to that officer, not to the intelligence unit, not to the analyst. But it's the analyst's job to go and try collect all that human interaction generated information and try to convert that back into something they can analyze. So I would say that even today, and again, five years from today, is that documentation of that human contact that happens between the officer or between your investigator and whoever they're talking, be it a witness statement or be it, you know, interview in the rooms or anything of that sort, or even on the streets, Or if there's a controlled buy that is happening, then, Whatever prep you do before the controlled buy or controlled sale of a drug is happening, you need to be aware of that. Because that's the kind of information you will never find in any database. So these are two things that I recommend for analysts to really look into.
2: Yeah. So do you have tips on how to collect this human interaction intelligence, as you mentioned, because you also mentioned that there also is a wall that you're trying to climb over and that folks want to keep stuff close to their best and don't necessarily want to share this type Mm -hmm. of information. So it's not only encouraging the listeners and the analysts to go out and gather this information, but also understand that This isn't something that may be readily given to them once they do ask.
0: I would say that, no doubt, it's really tough to go in the areas that you've never ventured before. And I think when it comes to analysts trying to look for those little nuggets of information that can complete a picture for them, they will need to look in the places they least wish to look for. Such as trying to get out of their comfort zone, build those kind of rapports with your police officers and try to get them to talk with you. Sometimes it's just as simple as that. And yes, you do have to climb high walls, trying to really penetrate someone's mind and see what do they have to give. Some people will just give you monosyllable responses, a yes or a no. They will not tell you anything further than that. And they will almost get annoyed by the questions you're asking. But then you have to again take a step back and understand, is this the right way I'm approaching this person, given what I know about him or her since before and so I would say that the best way to document all this is whenever these interactions take place is to almost like a transcriber sit and write down notes and those notes note takings help on things like briefings and ride-alongs but if the officer is out there patrolling the area on their own then having them to draft that notes page out themselves and just email it to you helps a lot. The way it's worked for our agency is that on our records management system we have something known as a field interview column where officers could just add the subject's information add the vehicles they were found in and a brief narrative about that and that goes as an official document on the RMS thing and so all the other officers who are in the area get to view that contact this officer made with this individual. And uh, that's how awareness happens. And it's almost like we can subsidize our effort of disseminating that information By the officer himself, the officer, the minute he puts it on the RMS, everybody knows. So that takes off that responsibility from us. So these are some of the small ways that that capturing has helped us. And then one of these new features that DataWalk offers us is that if all these notes are in one place, we convert that to a PDF and we directly put that into DataWalk. It can extract those specific things that we mentioned, such as the address, the phone numbers, the individual names, so vehicles that they traveled in. And it will immediately parse it out into different columns. So now what you can do is you can use that piece of information to assist your analysis with all the other bunch of Excel sheets that you're working on. So it's kind of different ways that you can do it. It helps a lot.
2: I like the idea of human intelligence, focusing on that a little bit more as a to-do versus the data. And, and I know when I was an analyst, I was comfortable with the data. I wasn't necessarily comfortable with going out and, and talking mm-hmm. to a lot of folks and not really knowing the area. and whatnot. The data was my comfort zone. So that's where I stayed. But I want to talk a little bit about the idea of intelligence, because you said something interesting in the in our prep call in that part of intelligence is, is explaining what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, intelligence is explaining what is important. Mm-hmm. And I think that holds true whether you are an, a crime analyst or an intelligence analyst. I, I think as crime analysts, we tend to put out these reports, put out these numbers, Without giving much thought as to one might be more important than the other it's just pushing out data and reports, so to speak, so I, I want to get your perspective on just the idea of intelligence and what is important and what's going to happen.
0: I will say that in beginning in any intelligence work or any intelligence project about an area, let's say you have a motel that's constantly getting lot of prostitution activity and drug activity. So you want to make this place a target. Everything that from start to finish is to make sure that the sergeants on that specific district squad are aware of that problem. They know when the intel unit is going to ask them questions or when they're going to send their investigator to look for it. Then it comes down to your, to the officers. on how much do you already know about this place? that you have not entered into any form of a report. Let's say you're only called over there by dispatch and then you take a report, but there's constantly activity happening there. And I'll give you an example of how this differs with crime analysis is that crime analysis will only show you what calls for service generated from there and how many incident reports were taken from there. But if I told you that there was a motel like a Red Roof Inn, for example, and it had all this activity going on, but actually your agency has been only dispatched there three times in a month, can we say that there was no drug activity or no prostitution activity that happened on remaining 27 or 30 days in that month? That would be a false picture. And so I say that beyond just the officer's knowledge now comes the knowledge of the motel's staff, the motel's manager, the motel's owner, and understanding what crime prevention measures they already have in the building, such as any security footages, any cameras in the parking lot, any kind of information that the staff is willing to provide, or whether anyone from the staff themselves are involved in a way trying to make more money behind the doors. All this type of information will never be revealed to anybody in a database. This is the stuff that you get when you make that human contact. So even when you have to meet with your officers, you as an analyst, have to inform them about a list of indicators to look for. You have to ask them to look for, look at any rented vehicles in the parking lot, look for activity happening during odd hours of the day. Try to look for any quick meetings happening between two cars or any kind of signaling happening between two individuals. Are there any people who are, you know, getting the smoke of marijuana at off times during the day? Any staff getting aware of that? There's a lot of trash that goes in from the rooms so are you finding any information from there but this is only if your officers are given that direction that they will go and start talking to the staff about it if they don't know where to look at we can't tell the officers okay officers you have a mission go find me everything and anything you can from the motel they will not know what you're looking for and which is why i i say that Having that briefing, having that thinking points and talking points with your officers helps a lot. And that kind of builds your intelligence requirements for that project. There are gaps you identify. And then you use not only the officers, but you use your covert investigators. Your, you use your human intelligence that's on the staff. You, you use each, each particular stakeholder in this entire game and you get their perspective in one place. And then you revisit the entire program again, trying to see, have I completed my gaps? Is this answering what I am looking for? And go over with that. And you will see that combining this intelligence with the data-related crime analysis gives you a whole different picture of what's happening in this location. And that's the reason why I say having human intelligence as a component. I will always stand by no matter it's 2040 and technology is amazing. You can even predict crime, you can do whatever out of the sun, but human intelligence is never going to be substituted with technology because if it's simple things with even tips, if I'm an annoyed girlfriend or if my boyfriend just dumped me or I saw him with another girl, I want to immediately call up and take vengeance on that and give information give information on what he's dealing, what he's doing so that he gets in danger. And I can't miss out on that. But that's the stuff the girlfriend is never going to talk to the officer about. She's going to probably want to remain anonymous. She wants to, you know, not be found out. So that's the stuff that you're going to get over a tip. And we cannot deny that right and i would also say that the entire goal of intelligence that's the reason why it goes from first trying to describe what the problem is then trying to explain why it's happening and then try to estimate as to what may happen given all of these conditions and that's like the truest goal of why we do intelligence at least that's how I see it fitting in even the local law enforcement scheme of things
2: yeah never underestimate a woman's scorn right
0: Yes. All
2: right. Very good. Well, let's finish up with personal interests. And uh, you have an interesting interest. When I asked you, you said hiking in the rain as one of your personal interests. So... Yeah. Is so obviously there's two conditions there. It's not just going for a hike, but you actually <laughs> have to plan accordingly and say, Oh, it's gonna rain, so I'm gonna go on uh-huh. a hike, which which I feel that most people that would be the exact opposite. They'd be like, Oh, it's <laughs> raining. I'm not going on a hike. Oh,
0: I love the rain. I absolutely love the rain. I think that during my work hours, when it's raining outside, I find myself just looking outside the window and wondering when it is I'll go and, you know, get drenched outside. I love Mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. There's no better pleasure that you can get from completely getting drenched and then drying off and having a cup of coffee. So I like to match that sequence of things. And uh, hiking in the rain is even more beautiful because all the while the the soil keeps getting the heat of the sun and those drops of rain fall on it. and The beautiful smell that comes out of it. I, I just love that. So I, I think it's for me, it's the it's the sound of the rain on the on the leaves on the ground on rocks and then there's no leaf crunching that happens you because you can't hear the crunch if it's a dry hike yeah. <laughs> that's why i like to do a wet hike
2: <laughs> so it home in india it is there a lot of rain there
0: yes where i stayed
2: is. okay, yes. okay. I was wondering, my mind went to I I was we were at a conference, I think in Seattle, the one year and the one woman I think was from Arizona or something. So Mm -hmm. she hadn't seen rain in two years. And so when it started raining, she was in awe of. Of the rain, so I wasn't sure if that was the same perspective that okay. you, that you have, but it sounds like it's not. So, do you watch the forecast and like, oh, this weekend it's going to rain? So, okay, I'm uh, not I, I that would...
0: big of fan. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just happened as a matter of interest. Is yeah. I like doing that. I'm the happiest that time. I'll say I have recently picked up doing acrylic pours. I just kept looking video, watching videos on them, and I think mm-hmm. it's very relaxing to just watch all the colors come alive so acrylic pouring painting is another one i would like to try my hand at kind of recently very soon
2: so just for for the listeners describe that a little bit more
0: so you would just basically have any kind of silicone or acrylic based paint Mm -hmm. You, you would have different techniques of put them up in a plastic cup layer them all together based on the colors you're going for and then have an empty canvas pour some white or a dark paint on the background and then just start from the center or make a little shape out of it and just pour the painting all over the canvas mm-hmm. uh, and then start tilting the canvas in different directions and so just watch where the paint goes and then you could take an air gun and just try to blow out all the air bubbles that have been formed. And so the it forms these small little circles in the paint. It's just very beautiful and very magical. And you can form literally anything. I saw one of the videos, they made a black hole almost with a black canvas and just neon purple and blue and just very magical. So I, I got my interest. from. I think it looks really very out of the world.
2: Very good. All right. Well, our last segment of the show is words to the world. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Akshata, what are your words to the world?
0: I was just thinking about it this morning. My words to the world would be never enjoy your pleasures more than they deserve and never suffer your pain more than it deserves.
2: Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you giving me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show. Akshada, thank you so much and you be safe.
0: Thank you very much, Jason. Very lovely talking to you and you be safe and have a good day. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show
2: your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at
0: www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts. Keep talking.